Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. There is a Namibian proverb, Phil. <laughs> it's their grasshopper. <laughs> we're off to a good start. Yes. Learning expands great souls. And that is what we're about to do in this episode of the World Nomads podcast. We're going to learn at least a little about Namibia. So thanks for tuning in. Well, I can tell you it's got some of the highest sand dunes in the world. It's home to the second largest canyon in the world. And there are about 30 languages spoken by the 2.4 million population. And look, the place takes conservation very, very seriously. In fact, 40% of the country is under conservation management, which is fantastic. And um, it's also a bit of a honeymoon destination if you're a prince, Harry and Meghan Markle. Well, there it, you go. See, since, since he married an American, they have worldwide appeal, don't they? So they par- do. apparently that's where they honeymooned. There you go. Well, he lo- well he loves Namibia and Africa. And Africa in general, yep. yeah. Well, in this episode, we will learn why it's a destination that's not just princes and princesses enjoy, but, <laughs> but nomads who want to travel uh, to that area. Uh, we'll hear about a black rhino exhibition, the story of a jumping spider, mm-hmm. and we'll start the episode with Helen Davies. Her blog, Helen in Wanderlust, is packed full of information and stories about African countries. We have spoken with her before, Phil, and we have her back again, which means she must have enjoyed herself. I did. Thank you for having me again. Good one. Well, we're going to chat this time about Namibia. And one of the things that blew my mind when we were kind of researching this episode is the idea that you could actually surf there and the more that we research these locations Phil the more we find out that almost every place you could surf yeah it is it's very popular everywhere we've got to find somewhere where it's not and talk about that is Namibia popular for surfing um I think surfing in Namibia is growing um it's not the most popular place in the world um probably just due to the fact that you know the waters there are quite cold with it being the Atlantic and everything um but yeah there's there are a few surf spots around that are, are growing in popularity like Skeleton Bay um that's kind of in between Swakopmund and Coleman's Cup where the like kind of the villages um that the abandoned diamond mine where people used to live and like it's now like a living museum kind of thing um yeah so skeleton bay that's quite a popular spot and it's got some big waves um which are growing in popularity and then around swakopmund as well there's that you often see a few surfers out in the water like if you walk along the pier there'll be people there i reckon it'd be pretty sharky though wouldn't it apparently there's never been a shark attack in namibia so um I don't think so. You would think so because there's so many seals, but maybe that's why. Because there's, you know, the the sharks are well fed, so they don't <laughs> need to, um, they don't need to go for the humans. But yeah, no, there's never been a shark attack there. Um, so yeah, it's probably a pretty good place for surfing. Just probably a little bit cold. Yeah. Now that whole skeleton coast too, great for diving shipwrecks. Yeah, there's 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 loads of shipwrecks um, around there. I've never been diving. I, I'm not a d- diver myself, but there's definitely a lot of shipwrecks that you can visit and see from along the coast. The the way that the um, I don't know all the science science behind it, but the way that the atmosphere and the air it, it 
brings up a lot of mist. So it used to be quite dangerous for sailors who were going along that coast. So um, obviously a lot of shipwrecks occurred because of the fog. And then a lot of them, they can't move. So they're still, they're still littered along the coast. And you can see them quite easily from the beach. Yeah. Where do all the names come from? Is it Dutch background, is it? Yeah, Dutch. And I think there's some German as well in there. Um, yeah, so... Is there, is there a movement there to, you know, rename it in the local language? I don't know. I mean, maybe there might be, maybe in the future, but at the moment, I think they're so kind of well embedded that they're, they're probably not changing. And there may be some local names as well um, that people use, but I, I think at the moment, I think everything's staying as it is. And speaking of local people, I mean, we have a uh, a video of our own at World Nomads as well where we went and visited a uh, Himba tribe and they are they are the most sort of iconic image of Namibia in a way, aren't they? The, because the, the way they decorate themselves. Yeah, the, especially the women. The women just look absolutely incredible. They, they kind of rub their skin in um, okra and it's like a like a butter um, and it makes it it's a beautify themselves and it makes their skin really soft and really beautiful um, and kind of one of the most interesting things about the Himba women is that they never wash they they smoke themselves clean and then use the um, the cream on their skin as well I like that idea it's a little bit like me Phil um, <laughs> a traveller though to Namibia experience a Himba village without you know yeah because we don't you don't want the disnified version of it are there still authentic places where you can go and meet yeah yeah definitely so um the best place really for Namibia is northern Namibia so up near Apuo it is a difficult one when you go and visit kind of any tribe um I think one of the most difficult things is trying to find an authentic experience um you know a lot of a lot of them aren't there's places further south um, that do have kind of villages you can visit but often they're kind of set up and it's the actual village isn't owned by the people who live there it might be they might have like they might live on a farm and get kind of like free food in exchange for visitors going there um so basically i mean any hotel up in the apuro region can organize a himba visit um but realistically i think the best way to do it authentically would be to go and spend some time there um and get to know some of the himba more organically and which is a hard thing to do especially if you're a traveler passing through um but that would be my ideal way but there are some some villages you can visit um you know and you won't get the same experience i don't think if you just visit for a day as if you kind of went and got to know people um but if you if you're around apuo there's a lot of himba like they're in town it's it's not unusual to see different tribes kind of walking around around town so you could get to know somebody that way or if you've got like a local friend who can introduce you to the himba then that's a much more organic way to do it because it's very important to us i mean it's part of our responsible traveler manifesto that you don't you know objectify people and you know turn it into a turn them into a tourist attraction of themselves so i take it if you do something like that then you can sort of contribute something to the you know like there's some sort of cultural exchange that you can do something that makes it not a tacky tourist experience yeah it's it's a it's a very difficult one really because i think nowadays a lot of 
the villages they can't always live in the traditional ways that they used to used to live because for whatever reason you know and and we do live now in a money society if if they need to go to hospital they need money mm. you know it's that kind of thing so how else do you earn money is you know that's one way of them earning money and tourism is a great way to do that um so yeah i think i think you as a tourist have a big responsibility um to kind of not objectify people I think it is a very difficult one, but yeah, cultural exchange is something that I think is very important. And also, um, you know, if you're going to take pictures or anything like that, you know, make sure you ask people. Some people really don't want their pictures taken, but people take them anyway. And I think it is important to ask, especially, especially for the women, because I think often the agreements made between the tourists and the village are done by the men and the men aren't the ones being photographed because they're often dressed in normal clothes. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's really important to kind of build up that rapport and, you know, not take advantage of people. Um, as always with your site, which we'll link to in show notes, there's so much about Africa. What, what's something else that you can leave us with, with regard to Namibia? I think Namibia is kind of, if you're looking for a really epic type of adventure, Namibia is that place. It's so different from everywhere else. Um, culturally, it's very different from other parts of Africa. Um, and I think it's just one of those places when you can have like, that kind of really wild experience, you know, like kind of, um, and you really can appreciate nature for all that it does because Namibia has so many natural beauty points you know the starry skies the incredible coastlines sand dunes going into the sea um great wildlife um it's just it's just a really different kind of experience from anywhere else that you're going to visit in africa thanks helen and world nomads contributor sarah duff agrees so I've always wanted to go to northern Namibia. On my previous trips, I'd uh, been to southern and central Namibia. Um, and what's special about northern Namibia is its remoteness and the fact that there, it's one of the last places in Africa where wildlife is roaming free. So you find uh, rhinos and lions and elephants that are not constrained um, within national parks. They're just roaming free in the wild, which is something that's very special. Um, and that was one of the reasons that I wanted to travel up there, also just because of the remoteness and the really spectacular landscapes of uh, Dummerland, which is the area I was in. Animals are roaming free. They're not inside. Most places where you go and see animals in Africa, they are inside a national park. One of the big reasons that people travel up there is to see desert elephants, to see these free roaming desert elephants, which can be very difficult to track because they cover such large areas. Um, but we were pretty lucky. We managed to see them pretty much every day of our trip while we were up there. So I watched a, a doco on those elephants and they live a hard life. <laughs> those particular yeah. the desert elephants don't they yeah it's a very harsh existence it's a it's a harsh environment it's very hot it's very dry um and they've adapted to to surviving for i think it's up to three days without water um and they have to walk very long distances to find water so it's really sort of an existence uh we're living on the edge of existence um because they can't, they're, they're not like other animals, like say an oryx that can get water from standing on dunes and just picking up the mist from the sea. Elephants do need water. 
Um, so it's a, it's a harsh existence for them to live. You went four wheel driving, which is what we call it in Australia or four by four. Um, tell me about that experience. Well, we went, we traveled in two cars. There were a group of six of us. Um, so it was myself, my husband and some very good friends. And the kind of leader of our trip, uh, was our friend, James Kidd, who is a wildlife guide and very experienced four by four. I've never been four by fouring before. And I was a bit nervous of driving, um, in the actual four by four routes that we took. Uh, but he kind of coached me through it and yeah, it was my first four by four experience and it wasn't exactly four by fouring for beginners. It was quite, uh, it was quite intense four by fouring. Um, but it was really fun. It was such an adventure and we got stuck a couple of times in the sand and just had to dig the cars out. Um, there's no other cars to come along and help you out. So you have to be really self-sufficient and I felt uh, comforted by the fact that I was traveling with someone who was so experienced. I wouldn't do a trip like this on my own. Um, and it's important to travel in a convoy. There's a lot of safety um, sort of rules that you should follow when, tra- when four by four in such a remote area, just because if something goes wrong, um, no one's going to come along and help you. Okay. So there's that. And then animals, is that a, a something that, that you fear? Um, so animals, so elephants can be a, a bit of a problem. Well, not a problem, but, um, just something to be for people to be aware of in this area. Um, because sometimes you're driving through a riverbed, a dry riverbed, and there's a lot of high, uh, grass and reeds and you can't really see. So there's a chance that you can kind of happen upon an elephant and give it a bit of a fright. So we were just really cautious and uh, just always trying to be aware of our surroundings. So not just looking at the road in front of us, but looking either side for, say, reeds, uh, you know, rustling of foliage in the distance. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a good idea to, if you're traveling in this area, um, just do some reading and do some research and educate yourself on how to stay safe and how to keep a safe distance from elephants. Um, because that's, that's sort of the issue is just getting a little bit too close and getting into to going past their comfort zone and pushing their boundaries a bit. And when we did actually encounter elephants, we always maintain a really respectful distance and we didn't have a problem with them at all. Okay. So for a, a world nomad, someone that's adventurous and independent, why would this particular, uh, country be of interest? I think Namibia ticks a lot of boxes. If you are into adventure travel, nature and landscapes, it just offers diversity and dramatic landscapes by the bucket load. If you want to get off the beaten path, it's incredibly easy to do that. Um, If you really want to get deep into nature like we did, where we didn't see another car or human for days and days and days, it was just us and the animals. Um, then Namibia offers lots of places where you can do that. And for adventurous travelers who like four by fouring and hiking and canoeing and mountain climbing, there's all of that in Namibia and more. I'll link to Sarah and the story she's written for us in show notes. But Phil, what is your travel news? Uh, a couple of uh, episodes back, I mentioned the emergence of that new movement, hashtag flight shame, yes. which is encouraging travelers to shun air travel because of the high environmental impact. I think we should investigate that properly in an episode coming up soon. Uh, 
But um, this week I received, coincidentally, a media release from the Hamad International Airport, which is in Doha. I passed through that airport recently and it is huge. Mm. Um, apparently it's, it's – and it's lit up like – Times Square in New York. Apparently, the airport is one third the size of the entire country. <laughs> Why do you need an airport that big? Oh well, they've got their own airline, so it's a major uh, transfer route. Right. So you know they make a lot of money out of that. For when the oil runs out, they want to be a transport hub. Uh, anyway. Uh, in this media release uh, from the airport, they're talking about their efforts in reducing energy consumption in oh. such a huge place. Irony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also in a country where, you know, summertime temperatures reach 50 degrees, so they've got to try and keep it nice inside. It's, it's good to know this issue is on their radar and good to know that, according to this release, they've made efficiency savings of 8% in the past year by doing one simple thing. They turned up the temperature on the air conditioning by one degree. Who was the Einstein that came up with that uh, idea? I think the UN's got it as well. There's a couple of places. I think there's some, somewhere in India have done it as well. Yeah. Okay. And I think the UN is asking air conditioner manufacturers to set the default temperature when you open it up out of the box at one degree higher. Yeah. So that, you know, we can get this energy saving around the world. Good idea. Good to know that, you know, airports are massive contributors to you know, the carbon footprint as well as airlines. So in the whole hashtag flight shame thing, uh, it's good to see that, you know, people are actually thinking about it at least. I see what you've done. Thank you. Hashtag flight shame, hashtag Hashtag someone's doing something about it. (laughs) There you go. Look, we all love a road trip, but that can be a bit hard to organise, can't they, without, you know, doing too much backtracking? Oh, exactly. Well, a complete nerd... I'm sorry, I mean data scientist. <laughs> As issue, he's used a supercomputer and a special algorithm that he's come up with to calculate the ultimate European road trip. It takes in 45 of the 50 sites you must see in Europe before you die. And he's worked out it would take two weeks. Two weeks non-stop driving 24-7. <laughs> to see how many must 40, Yeah, 45, you know, Leaning Tower of Pizzas and Eiffel Towers and pizzas. what have you. <laughs> Pizza. <laughs> uh, the scientist Randy Olson recommends putting aside three months for the trip if you want to actually eat, sleep and uh, visit the sites. Ah, there's the two weeks, right. <laughs> two weeks of actual driving. Yeah, non-stop. Without backtracking too much. Right. There you go, that's my news. Thank you. Well, you may be familiar with Jigar Ganatra. No, you are. He was our film scholarship winner. Can you remember the year, Phil, off the top of your head? Uh, what are we now? 2050. Uh, no, 17? I'm going to look that up now. I will have the answer after this interview. (laughs) We're back to Phil's (laughs) quiz question. Anyway, he was the scholarship winner who was mentored by filmmaker Brian Rapsey, who we will also hear from in this episode. Yeah, yeah, look, he's certainly turned his passion into a profession, launching his own production company and his own travel company, which helps other aspiring filmmakers and photographers who don't necessarily have the skills or resources to learn or go to film school. Uh, Jigger, that... Sounds like a very familiar model. Oh, definitely, definitely. Like, um, so the scholarship exactly was a big part of the inspiration for this business. And so was another company that I worked for. I worked for a company called Operation Groundswell, and they sort of do travel around the world, but they partner up with local organizations, grassroots organizations, in ranging from um, Amazonian artists in Peru to um, you know, uh, monasteries in the Himalayas. So it really allows you to experience and connect with people on the ground who you otherwise wouldn't connect with. 
So it's a, hi- it's a hybrid between the World Nomad Scholarship that I won, as well as this company that I used to work for. And your first, I think the first assignment is uh, Tanzania, which is, of course, where you are. Wait, sorry, not where you are, where you're from. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's where I'm from, Tanzania. And actually this, this time uh, in January, I went back home to Tanzania after three years of being away, being abroad. And uh, the last time I was in Tanzania, I wasn't yet a filmmaker. So this time I went there as a, as a filmmaker and that allowed me just to experience and connect with my country on a whole new level, you know, to go to places where I otherwise wouldn't go to and ask questions that, and have conversations, you know, that's what filmmaking allows me to do. Um, connect with people and ask questions that opens up their world and allows me to have a deep insight into it. So yeah, um, I want the first country to be Tanzania. So what did you learn about your own country that you didn't know? Okay. Well, there was this one experience that I had um, where I was living, well, I was living with a lot of different communities while I was there, but I was living with uh, the Chaga community in the base of Mount Kilimanjaro at the time, this time, and they still don't have electricity in 2019. As of January, 2019, uh, this community, which is just an hour away from Moshi, um, doesn't have electricity and, uh, you know, the washroom, the sanitary situations is, uh, and for me as a Tanzanian, you know, that's very surprising because um, almost all of Tanzania that I know of have electricity. So that was very surprising. I didn't know about that. And all these other stories and faces that I, that you don't see, you know, normally as a Tanzanian person, unless you travel to, through these lengths. So are you sticking to your mantra of uh, uncovering world issues and, and giving a voice to minorities? Um, so yeah, the notion of, of minorities has, has changed a little bit for me. I mean, um, uh, it's, it's just more, just being around the world, I, I see like minorities is, is a bit of a problematic word because that's sort of, the idea is to, mm, no, I don't really like the word anymore. I, uh, but, but you can say sort of, yes, I am sticking to the mantra of, um, going to people who have not been heard or who's stories that you don't normally hear in the, in the news or in normal media on YouTube and going to these places to find out, well, using the advantage of me speaking languages to uncover, uncover their stories. Yep. So six languages. So you're giving them a voice. So I know what you mean about the, the connotation behind the word minority, but it's giving people a voice. That's right. Exactly. That's what I want to do. Because they're not really a minority because it's, you know, there are so many groups like that. It's probably a majority of people, isn't it, on the planet? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, that's what I've realized that, okay, these people that I'm visiting all over the world, they have a lot in common. And, you know, they're a huge group of people who share a lot of things. So at the end of the day, they are a majority. They are not a minority. So tell us the name of your business and people that are interested, how would they uh, connect with you? Right. So the name of the business is Halicia or in Swahili, Halicia. But, uh, you know, in daily language, it becomes Halicia because that's how most English words are. But uh, Halicia oh, no. means... Wait until we get hold of that word, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, myself, I've transformed the word as well in daily language. But Halicia means uh, to make something authentic in Swahili. Uh, it's it's to find the the essence or the truth behind a certain, certain thing. So that's sort of a big inspiration for me in the way that I travel. Um, it's, to, it's to really get deep and get out of the comfort zone to see what's beneath 
the see between the lines, see what's beneath the surface, and have real deep connections with people. And uh, so, yeah, that's the philosophy. Because when you travel to Tanzania, when many people travel to Tanzania, at least you know they usually have a prepackaged uh, trip, or they have some sort of trip where it's very luxurious and very beautiful, and they have an amazing experience of Tanzania. But uh, it's very surface level, you know, they're not connecting with the stories on the ground and it's not really helping the image of Africa. It's either, wow, that was so amazingly luxurious and beautiful, or it's a really impoverished place. You know, there is no depth in the story. So the whole idea behind my company and apart from a workshop of photography and filmmaking is to is to sort of find the Halicia of, of Tanzania and soon other countries in Africa. That's so lovely. Are you thinking it's at this point it is... Um I'm going back to my Tasmania, my Tanzania. It's really hard to say that word, Jigger, because I'm from Tasmania. So it's just, I know. yeah. I get that a lot from all around the world. Oh, Tasmania. Yo, you're, you're, from, you're from where the uh, Tasmanian devil is. <laughs> I know. Okay, we've got something in common. Um, so you, will you look at places like um, Zambia, Namibia? So at the moment, my next uh, African country is going to be Ghana because I have a, a friend who also used to work for the previous company that I used to work for who has a lot of experience in the travel industry as well as the kind of way that we travel. So Ghana will be the next one. But yeah, Zambia, uh, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Ethiopia, all these places are so rich and so so deep in their culture that I really want myself as well. I, I have to be honest that even as an African myself, I don't know much about these other countries. This would be, this is going to be a journey for myself to expand into 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 knowledge and experience in other parts of Africa. Congratulations, Digger. Well done. And have you remembered which year he won the film scholarship? I was right, 2017. Oh, <laughs> you were always right. Now, this is the guy who mentored Jigar when he won the film scholarship. It's Brian Rapsey, as we mentioned earlier. World Nomad sent Brian off to Namibia where he tracked the black rhino. Oh, it was wonderful. You know, it's kind of like a... For me, it was a bit like I've spent a bit of time up in the Kimberleys in northwestern Australia. Uh, it's hot. The, the earth is red. Um, there's kind of quite scrubby bushes there. And there's a lot of um, stones and rocks. Um, it's super hot. The gods tell us to be extremely quiet because the, the rhinos have a really keen sense of hearing. And so the, the whole trekking experience happens in stages where you st- start out in these vehicles and you drive down into um, this valley, which, you know, it has a sense of being like Monument Valley. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's incredible. And, and so we start by driving down into the valley in these open vehicles, and then we're stopping along the way to try to find... Uh, evidence of the, 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 the black rhinos, which are footprints or dung. And um, we stop, we all get out and we, we look, we eventually find some footprints. Uh, that's a good sign. Um, the, the, the trackers are, you know, they're um, wetting their fingers and finding out which way the wind's blowing and yeah. trying to work out whether or not, you know, have a keen sense of smell, these rhinos, um, making sure that we're downwind. It takes a while, um, but you get to go out, you know, on foot standing next to these guys as they're looking for all the signs. And the great sign that we found was some fresh rhino dung. Then they kind of make a pretty good punt. And the really interesting and frustrating part of it was like Perry and I were the youngest of the lot. The, the rest of them were sort of, you know, like a couple of day, 
um, decades older than us, and they were clumsy on their feet, and they kept kicking and knocking the rocks. <sighs> so there's like bang, bang, and, and that was going to one of the riders. <laughs> I thought, oh, God, this is going to be a write-off. You know? <laughs> um, but, you know, like those rhinos wouldn't have to put up with us. But then, you know, we spotted them way off into the distance, and we managed to sneak up closer and closer. On, on foot? On foot, yeah, yeah. So is this something that was um, only afforded to, to you, that being a travel junket, or is it something that anyone that goes to Namibia it's, can do? It's something that anyone can do. And, and so what, what's the interesting part about this whole place that we went to uh, called the Grootberg Lodge is that it was like a social enterprise. It was a travel destination, like a, a lodge set up uh, in partnership with the local tribes people. Um, and so that they would get employment from this and they get training from it. Their tribes people would be trained as, 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 as guides, etc. And so for them, for these, lo- for these people in the local area, the conservation value of the black rhino in the environment would be more valuable to them and their children and their community than, than poaching them. And so anybody can do this. And these, the rhino that you spotted had been protected from poachers? Yes, that's right. Um, so what they do, because they're so endangered, um, you know, unfortunately, sadly, but you know, I think ultimately to their benefit is that the rangers dehorn them so that they're of no value to poachers and they paint big yellow crosses on their backs so that, you know, you can tell from a distance that they're being dehorned and that, you know, you're not tempted to uh, shoot them with a long-range rifle or, or anything like that. That kind of doesn't make sense to me, though. Why would you dehorn them? Well, then they get to reproduce, so maybe we can build the numbers up again. The horn is – it's not horn anyway. It's like some kind of like very matted hair, uh-huh. basically. So, right, okay. I mean, it just has to be sawn off. It's like pretty – Pretty sturdy stuff, but just it's thinking not. of the rhino here. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's like cutting toenails. I'm sure it doesn't. Yeah, you're probably right. Actually, yeah. yeah. Can I say I've had a similar experience on foot? I think mine was a white rhino, the docile one, the less dangerous one. But I, I, I was in South Africa and I'd spent you know three, three or four days in the open vehicle where you're told not to get out because you know. And we were actually. The vehicle we were in at one stage was used by a leopard to stalk some impala, which is pretty, <laughs> pretty exciting. But then when we found the rhino, the uh, the guide says he wants to come stalk the rhino on foot. And as soon as I stepped out of the vehicle, I had this overwhelming sense that I was in the food chain, <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, oh shit, <laughs> we're food now. And I could immediately smell everybody's soap and perfumes from the group that I was in. And same thing, the noise we made as we were all trying to walk as carefully as it's possible, every twig that snapped, I realised, you know, put us deeper and deeper into the food chain. Was It was exhilarating? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And did you find it exhilarating? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it was wonderful because when we found these, these two rhinos, it was a – uh, a mother and a child, and you know they were beautiful, and you, you know they, you know the child was sort of just chasing on the tails of the mother, yeah, and they cute. spotted us fairly quickly, and and uh, we saw them sort of bolt over the hill and stuff like that. Oh, it great! Was exhilarating. What was your experience like with the with the locals? Is in your story you talk about a dinner, lots of singing, and it was wonderful. I think it's a, a, 
a tradition there, or what seems to be the lot of the lodges, is that once, you know, you've wound up dinner, is that uh, all the, the cook and the white staff and everybody else come out and you sort of provide uh, entertainment and they do singing and dancing, which is wonderful. You know, I've always, I've always loved, you know, African vocal music. Yeah. And I love that time lapse that you've got of the valley that's in the story as well. Well, that's an interesting story as well. We arrived there, you know, sun was going to set soon. I went to uh, the our, my cabin, which was the most beautiful rustic building. And the, the view that you have of that time lapse is yeah. basically out of the window no. of that thing. Yeah. <laughs> I've been in a lot of hotel rooms in my life, and I yeah. find them generally pretty sort yeah, of could be sterile anywhere. or whatever. But this felt like like a, a hobbit hole sort of built with the local stones over top of it, you know, in a mound, but, you know, really well appointed. So I went in, set up this time lapse, and I went in and had a shower, you know, for the first time in a couple of days, um, and then was promptly bitten by a jumping spider um, <gasps> in a region between my legs, um, which kind of freaked me out because everything went numb. <laughs> <laughs> so I was in a state of high anxiety for a little while until dinner when I asked somebody about, you know, I, I got bitten by a spider. I didn't tell them where at first. And they said, oh, <clears throat> Was it um, dangerous? The bite. No, it wasn't. Right. And I was great, relie- greatly relieved when my alarm went off at five in the morning. Yeah, so, yeah, I've made it. <laughs> when, you know, uh, where I went out and reset the time lapse to camera get to get the sunrise. Beautiful. So beware of jumping spiders in Namibia. The, Nibi- yeah. the Namibian groin spider. <laughs> Amongst Avoid the sheets. Yeah, <laughs> not good. Well, the story will be in show notes. Brian, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, and it's great to see you guys in person. I know. We love the studio. (laughs) Thanks for coming in, mate. Thanks. We will have a link to Brian's experience, which he has written about for us, and some stunning photographs that he took in show notes. But, Phil, that brings us to the end of this episode as we prepare for another amazing nomad. Next step. Looking forward to this one. Eric Maddox, he created the Virtual Dinner Guest Project, bringing people from different cultures together over a meal via video link, and it's really breaking down the barriers. It's a really interesting project. Yeah, you will enjoy this, man. Speaking of amazing nomads, we're soon catching up with Sarah Davis, who's finished paddling the uh, pretty much the length of the Nile. We'll hear more about her story. So it might be a good time to have a listen to the episode we shared before she set out on her adventure. As I've said before, it's like, where's the wiki on this? There yeah. isn't one, and there really isn't. And it's just been, you know, when I came up with the idea, it's like, okay, like, no one's no one's done this, and I love travelling to Africa, it's kayaking. It was just that ultimate light bulb moment, right, this is what I want to do. So that was sort of the easy bit. The next bit was how. You'll find that episode in show notes, and you can get the World Nomads podcast through your favourite podcast app. Don't forget you can ask Alexa and Google Play to play the World Nomads podcast, and Phil, to get in touch. Podcast at worldnomads.com. Be very happy to receive your email. See you next time. Bye. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.